Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to Growing with Fishes podcast 338. Uh, as you guys can tell, once again, I don't have my hard drive plugged in to, um, to load up the intro, so I apologize. Uh, today, we have one of our favorite guests for the show. We have uh, Luna Whitcomb joining us again. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing good. Uh, you've been doing all kinds of cool stuff lately. Um, uh, you uh, also are uh, uh, an author and a writer and a whole bunch of other wonderful things aside from uh, being uh, quite the, the organic chemist. Um, you've been working on a whole bunch of cool stuff that I wanted to kind of uh, uh, make sure we had a chance to talk about and, um, and highlight. Uh, you're doing all kinds of different plant ferments and things like that. And it's something that I'm real passionate about. I wanted to kind of um, have you talk about some of the cool stuff that you're working on. Yeah, for so thanks sure. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Yes, I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing. I'm doing uh, like Patreon work. Um, I'm always really busy in the garden. Uh, I definitely love making compost teas and kind of like having unique approaches to compost teas. Um, well, yes, there's my Instagram. Um, I love growing big plants. As you can see, I'm also breeding. Um, so I have like seeds available. I like to kind of custom tailored teas for very specific purposes, um, like um, one of the more recent things I was doing was like treating hydrophob hydrophobic soil. Um, yeah, that one there, I've been playing around a lot with um, different prebiotic sources. So, and then that's phycocyanin extract, which is actually an idea that I got from you. Um, I had first heard of phycocyanins from you um, with your super lab technique. Um, and I thought of uh, skipping the, uh, the lab-based fermentation of uh, spirulina and just going straight to phycocyanin extract. And I've been playing around with that quite a bit. Um, I like to set the stage for biology with amino acids and calcium, which are kind of like um, crucial components to, you know, cells, right, to cell formation. Um, so I like to introduce those to my compost teas like early on, kind of set the stage for brewing. Um, let the tea brew and then add different inputs with very specific organic acid profiles that have uh, specific physiological effects that stimulate growth processes in the plants for whatever stage that they're in or for whatever the soil is needing at that time. And that's what I'm that's what I'm working on. So you do a lot of different really brightly colored uh, uh, ferments as well. You do a lot of stuff with beets yeah. and other things. Um, yeah. uh, do you want to talk, yeah. maybe give us a little bit, obviously uh, uh, you can get your wonderful recipes on your uh, Patreon and there's uh, a bunch of, a whole bunch of other awesome resources there uh, uh, aside from that. Um, uh, I guess we yeah, will start off with that. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the different uh, inputs that you've been working with um, or some of the other different, uh, 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 you know, things that you've kind of discovered with, oh, maybe start off with the the one that you were talking about, the hydrophobic uh, uh, mix. Um, what are some of the different benefits that you've noticed with the phycocyanin or some of these other um, um, inputs that you hadn't seen with the, your you know, previous inputs? So it's difficult to identify specific effects when you're using like a whole bunch of different things at once, right? Um, but what it does, in, and this is kind of uh, anecdotal, just like from observation, it does seem like phycocyanins create wide plants. Um, I've noticed things tend to not get as tall and get a little bit more wide, which is an interesting effect. Um, I saw that there was a, a professor, I forget at what college, 
but he was also doing experimentation with or experiments with phycocyanin extract and growing lettuce. Um, and that those lettuce um, bushels or whatever they're called, um, they were growing very wide and not very tall, um, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think has pretty cool implications in cannabis when it comes to like canopy management um, and keeping things from getting too, too high, close to the lights, maybe indoors if you're growing indoors. Um, I like to grow really big trees. So having a wider plant is easier to work with. So you're not on like this huge ladder, right? But that is, you know, anecdotal evidence. That's just kind of something that I've observed and um, something that I've seen through research that I found other people kind of doing stuff with phycocyanin. Yeah, I know there was a group in Hawaii that was messing with it for a while back in the mid 20 teens, but I don't I don't know whatever happened with them. That was the only other group that I've seen that I, I think that might be the one that you're, you're citing. Um, so this is a recent thing. Really... Oh, sorry. Good. Oh, this was a recent thing. Someone who's currently doing the research on phycocyanin. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I hadn't heard that about making them wider. That, that's really interesting. Uh, certainly something that a lot of people are chasing for sure. Yeah. Um, um, what about... Sorry, we have a bit of a lag, so we kind of keep talking over each other. Um, but I did a lot of research on phycocyanin and like the effects that um, it has on cannabis plants. And it's been shown to um, increase metabolic pathways, like stimulate the metabolic processes um, in cannabis plants and result in more, you know, flavonoid pathway stimulation and uh, potentially more secondary metabolites, you know, our volatile compounds that result in more aroma profile, um, different expression of, of cannabinoids, terpenes, esters, uh, phenols, thiols, things like that. Um, that definitely has a lot more research to be done, but from what I've seen is that it does stimulate these effects. Um, it also has an interesting relationship with nitric oxide, um, which is why I've decided to pair it with beet juice because beets have a lot of nitric oxide in them. Um, and phycocyanin has an interesting relationship with um, nitric oxide. They seem to like play on each other in a certain way. I'd have to like pull up the exact study, but um, I intentionally paired them together to kind of interact with each other. Um, nitric oxide is also, you know, it stimulates metabolic pathways and flavonoid pathways also, which is a compound that, that I haven't really seen be talked about a lot in cannabis growing. Nitric oxide, you know, bodybuilders will use it and stuff. Um, to, you know, like for like blood circulation uh, and they're in like bodybuilding supplements. So I intentionally paired the two together. Um, red beet is also high in inulin, which is a prebiotic. Uh, it's a polysaccharide. And uh, I've kind of been going down this, this, um, this path of using prebiotics in compost teas um, in the forms of polysaccharides to promote diversity of biology within teas and, and, and within soil. Sometimes I'll add them pre-brew, kind of let the biology form in the tea, but a lot of the times I add them post-brew because I feel like a lot of that biological diversity is more likely to occur in the soil, like uh, during biological processes in the soil than in a compost tea because compost teas aren't really a proper representation of soil composition and what can multiply in soil. Our soils are pretty complex. They have a lot of different organic acids. They have a lot of different phenols. They have, you know, we build them with a whole bunch of different inputs that have these really wide profiles of, of phyto compounds. 
um, that affect biology and biological profiles that we can't really mimic in a compost heap. So a lot of the times I, I like to add these um, really diverse inputs, these, these inputs that have a lot of different organic acids and different phyto compound profiles um, to the end of a compost heap. Uh, and then introduce it to the soil with biology to let the soil kind of figure it out. Um, I'm really big into like top dressing your inoculants. My, my favorite is gonna be like earthworm castings and insect fast. Um, I try not to overuse insect fast because it can stimulate plant defense mechanisms that you don't perpetually want throughout your growth cycle. Um, you know, your plant only has so much energy that it can allocate to specific processes. We don't wanna constantly be triggering them to be um, having like a pest defense response. So that's kind of it. And so I have like a whole bunch of different approaches to that concept. Um, I'll use, you know, a diversity of polysaccharides, a diversity of prebiotics. Um, there's main categories of, of polysaccharides. You know, we have our uh, insect-based, we have our mushroom-based, we have our algae-based, our plant-based, and our mammal-based, right? Um, and they all have different categories within them, but there's a huge list of different prebiotics, right? Um, another one that I was playing with was beta-glucan, which is um, a prebiotic, a polysaccharide um, that's found in mushrooms, right? And so I would introduce that to a compost tea with mushroom compost. And my intention is to feed the biology within the mushroom compost, the specific biology in the mushroom compost that feeds on that specific polysaccharide um, feed it the beta-glucan, you know, to kind of stimulate the multiplication of that, that biology. Um, so, you know, we have, it's very common for people to use molasses, right? Um, a lot of biology is going to feed on molasses, but simple, simple sugars, they aren't the best thing for diversity. They also are consumed very quickly and die out very quickly. And you see like a spike in biology and kind of like a drop in biology that um, I've observed under microscope um, and it's kind of just known in the community. While polysaccharides, prebiotics are the most abundant source of energy in uh, nature, they're in everything, they're in all plants, they have, they're, they're just, they're, they're the most abundant energy source. So I've been playing with that more so. And um, I've found that I don't see umycetes when I'm using um, polysaccharides um, like you would when using molasses, which is very common. It just seems more stable, super reliable, and conceptually makes sense to me. It's really difficult to identify whether or not these concepts are uh, actually producing specific biology because, you know, that relate to them. It's, it's very conceptual. It's kind of anecdotal because we don't have the or I don't have the, the tools necessary to like do DNA sequencing or, um, you know, plate them in, in, a, in, a, in a way that we would actually know. So it's kind of, it's kind of just something that I've been playing with and something that makes sense to me, right? But um, as far as like, do I know that I'm stimulating like a wider diversity of biology? I don't really, because we can't, we can't properly identify under microscope like different morphological characteristics that feed, you know, the, the morphological characteristics of biology that feed on these specific polysaccharides. It's just not uh, something that's that's possible with a microscope. But that's like that's like what I've been playing with, um, and then promoting the the organic acids to stimulate growth processes at the end. 
kind of my my approach is just diversity diversity of inputs diversity of food sources um, and custom tailoring those teas for specific processes um, based on the knowledge that we have on the the profiles of plant animal algae insect mushroom inputs that are being used that's really interesting um is there anything that you do differently like you talked a little bit about not wanting to overdo it with insect press and things like that um you kind of touched on there wanting to do things a little bit differently near the end of the run uh, what are you doing differently with your biology um you know as you approach harvest so biologically not too much i really like to identify what the soil is lacking and then custom tailor a tea to facilitate whatever gap there is inside the the soil so if I see that my microbial density is low, um, I'd like to do top dresses, or if I don't have top dresses on hand, I will use compost teas. But if I don't need bacteria, I don't add it. And if I see that there aren't protozoa populations, um, then I'll tailor a tea to encourage protozoa diversity and then introduce the protozoa. But if I don't need biology, if I don't need bacteria and I don't need protozoa, I don't add it. Um, our soil kind of creates like an equilibrium of what it wants. You know, our bacteria will break down specific nutrients and specific species of bacteria break down specific nutrients to make available. Um, and when we're perpetually adding more bacteria, we're kind of interrupting that cycle. I like to add biology, let the soil figure it out, and then just kind of water only. Um, there's a lot of times where I'll just use plant animal algae mushroom inputs without biology um, without like aerobic fermentation to kind of feed the 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 bacteria the, the the biological profiles but i don't make like teas unless i think that the soil needs them um i'm currently working with two different soils right um i moved on to this project and uh built a big big long soil bed and you can see it in my my instagram content um, and that's my own custom soil mix. I haven't been giving that compost teas because it doesn't need it. But we have these other boxes that surround it that we're using this year that hadn't been used last year or for several or three, three, four years before that. And I'm having to build back the biology in those teas. Yeah, that's my, that's my bed. That's my baby. I love that soil. <laughs> um, so those boxes, you can see them around over there. They have like herbs growing them in and stuff. Um, and uh, we decided to, to, you know, grow cannabis in them. And uh, they were super hydrophobic. They were very much so lacking bacteria, lacking protozoa. They were just completely stalled out. They were dry as bone. You know, when you watered them, it was just puddles on dust. I like my little frog guy, that's my little buddy. I love the frogs in the, in the, um, in the garden, my little frog friends and my lizard friends. And yeah, that's one of the one of the plants. It was almost two months ago now. She's a big girl now. She's up past that trail scent. Um so what I've been doing is kind of prepping, prepping. Yeah, okay, cool. So this is one of the the responses from a tea that I made. Um I got a seed. I started it really early. I let it get root bound um, and I didn't plant it. 
uh, on time. And when I put it in the soil, the soil was not was not kicking. And it wasn't functioning right. And this plant was just suffering. It was in there for probably about like two weeks and it was just dragging. The other plants around it were growing, were nice and healthy. And this plant was just not, not feeling it. Um, and so I made it like a really, a really solid tea. Um, I forget which one it was, but it was whatever tea I had posted just immediately before that. Um, and I saw just an immediate turnaround in health, uh, really focusing on is it that one? If it was that one. Oh, yeah, that was me after pruning it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was this one. It was the one with the beet, the phycocyanin. Here, let's go through this real quick. So I added the red beet as my prebiotic. Will you, kick, will you um, cl click back to the, the hydrophobic soil one real quick? I kind of just want to like walk through it. So I set the stage with beet juice um, and phycocyanin extract, and it just made this wicked color, um, this like super purple. I had oat flour also as a starch and um, kind of like fat content. Gypsum and, gypsum and soy aminos, you know, my calcium source, my amino acid source, um, to really give the, the foundation for cell division and cell formation within the, the bacteria, then the earthworm castings for the bacteria. I really like um, mesophilic broken down inoculants like earthworm castings and insect frass. Blended up aloe. I love aloe vera. And I add that post-brew because I don't want these organic acid compounds changing um, with the biology. You know, bacteria will convert specific organic compounds into other organic compounds. Um, and I really like the profile of aloe vera, so I like to add it post-brew. Um, and then I added a bunch of fish too. Um, and this is the fish, the fish have a lot of fat, right? They have a lot of fat content, um, the omega-3, and that fat content is really good for keeping biology multiplying in the soil. I don't like to overuse fish because I feel like it's like a fuel. It's almost like a gasoline where it just explodes in bacteria. And that's what I really needed um, with this dry hydrophobic soil. Um, and then the saponin content in the aloe vera help with the penetration. So I had prepped that soil for about a week where I mulched it and I watered it every day, every day, every day. And I didn't plant in it until I saw that the, the moisture penetration had gone through. Um, and then I planted and then I added this tea to really get those saponins throughout the soil. Um, a lot of people like to use saponins to break soil tension. I want those saponins throughout the soil so that water continues to penetrate consistently everywhere, every time I water. Um, I also like to use, you know, yucca, that's kind of like the obvious um, saponin content input. And uh, once I had the hydrophobic tension kind of broke up, that surface tension broke up, um, the bacteria was all there from this tea. And then the next step that I did is I went into tailoring a protozoa dominant tea, which I just did with um, alfalfa. I just used like alfalfa mulch like leftover alfalfa mulch that I had. T 
T's, if you let them go long enough, will become protozoa dominant. And there's a lot of um, confusing information out there about protozoa and ciliates being a sign of uh, anaerobic conditions. I think that this is often misunderstood. This was kind of a piece of information that was put out by like Elaine Ingham and is, is correct in a way. Ciliates and protozoa are aerobic organisms. So they consume oxygen. So they can only exist in an oxygen environment. But when you have populations that are too high, um, they can cons consume all of the dissolved oxygen in the solution and create anaerobic conditions, which can lead to, to different pathogens um, when mixed with an oxygen source. So there's a lot of anaerobic fermentation techniques um, and they aren't as likely to get um, pathogens. They still can, and they're still more likely to get them than like aerobic fermentations. But it's when you mix anaerobic and aerobic conditions together is when you start seeing pathogenic formation, um, which is kind of confusing. And I encourage people to, to look it up. Um, so I keep my, my teas like this, um, my protozoa teas, I keep them constantly um, aerated, right? I add a lot of oxygen to them and I also keep my water very cool. And then when I'm done using it, I add it to another barrel and I dilute it with cold water because cold water is going to have a higher dissolved oxygen content. It can hold oxygen better than warm water can um, to kind of keep that aerobic environment going, right? Um, and so by adding the bacteria and then adding the protozoa, we have kind of rebuilt the soil food web. The bacteria will break down organic matter, the protozoa will consume that bacteria, and that's part of how nutrient cycling works. It's not the entire picture. There's a lot of chemical reaction stuff that's going on um, between elements and nutrients, but this is a big portion, and maybe not big, it's definitely not like the majority, but it is a decent portion of how nutrients are cycled. Um, a lot of the time, nutrients are uptake in, in these organic systems through like um, endophytes, the roots of the plants actually consuming, like breaking down bacteria and consuming their, their contents, even their DNA. Um, and also releasing DNA back out. And, you know, there's all this talk about like horizontal gene transfer, which has is, is become um, a more popular conversation these days, which I think is really interesting. Um, but this is an important part of the picture of how we keep like our soil healthy, you know, is having the full picture of biology, our bacteria and our protozoa and like diversity of both of them. One thing I did want to mention is if you're doing this with aquaponics, don't use yucca. Use aloe vera as your saponin. Um, but otherwise, uh, I just wanted to mention that just in case someone was uh, was using that input in aquaponics. <laughs> Why don't you want to use yucca um, in aquaponics? Yucca is extremely fish lethal, whereas the saponin and aloe vera is not fish lethal. Interesting. Uh, Quagilla is generally much less lethal. I, you can kill fish with it, but you have to dose it at a much higher rate. Um, yucca, a few drops and, you know, 10,000 gallons will kill every fish in there. So um, if you're directly next to a stream or a river, uh, you know, think about swapping out the yucca component. But there's plenty of other organic saponins that you can use in place of it, like aloe vera, uh, and it has no effect on the, uh, the local aquatic life. But that's just the one caveat I wanted to mention is uh, in aquaponics, at least, uh, uh, swap out the yucca with, with the additional aloe vera instead. 
Um, one thing like, I wanted to uh, also just. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying that's good to know. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's one thing I think I wish the yucca products just had a little like caution, like can harm aquatic life kind of thing. Um, the uh, one thing you mentioned uh, that is often um, uh, not brought up enough is the uh, uh, with the protozoas and the protists. Um, you, you have to cycle them so that their waste kind of goes back in because their waste feeding on the fungi and the bacteria is a little more plant available than necessarily the fungi or bacteria themselves. And people kind of forget that part that you kind of have to recycle those uh, microbes with uh, the predators in order to really get the best benefit. And so then that certainly isn't talked about. I know Dr. Gum talked about like a grass tea, um, you know, with, with fresh cut grass being another good one. Uh, like a four-day brew with that, if memory serves me correctly, which is, uh, just as you were saying, is much longer than you traditionally would do for a 24- or 36-hour brew. Um, you know, kind of allows the bacteria to bloom off and then get consumed by the predators and have that higher population of, of amoeba and protists um, to kind of um, to cycle those through. Yeah, so that's, that's um, another approach for sure. I live out in the desert, but we don't have any grass here. <laughs> Um, so I was kind of like working with what I had, but yeah, if you go out like early morning when there's still dew on the grass um, and cut your grass, collect a whole bunch of it, um, ideally not grass that's been sprayed with like pesticides or herbicides, you know, like your, like your lawn or something, um, be careful. But uh, collect it early in the morning when there's dew on it because um, it wakes the protozoa up. These protozoa, they um, will all you know, protozoa and um, bacteria, they can form these cysts around them. Uh, for bacteria, they're called bacterial spores. These are survival mechanisms when things get too dry. Um, you know, it's kind of what people say when biology goes dormant. So early in the morning, they get wet, they kind of wake up, you can collect them, um, throw them in, in your water solution, aerate them for a while. You can just kind of throw it in there, let it like rinse off, strain the grass out of it and then use that fresh right away. Um, but you can also, you know, continue to aerate it and the protozoa will, will multiply and you can use it that way too. Yeah, so if you need an excuse to drunkenly uh, mow the lawn at 3.30 or 4 a.m., that's a good one. That's, yeah, <laughs> Wake up early in the morning, mow the lawn, go weed back your side. Yeah, I get it. Get up at 4 a.m. and put on mow the lawn so that you can get that nice dew-rich uh, grass blades. So I saw you also work with, uh, I closed the window. Why did I do that? Um, I was trying to pull up uh, something and close your window. I also work with um, corn, a corn input. Sorry, I'm going to pull it back up here. Yeah, so corn steep powder. That's it, yeah. Yeah, corn seed powder. So that's a new input that I've been using lately. Um, it has a great um, NPK profile. It's a little bit more nitrogen leaning, but it also has a lot of different organic acids that stimulated a lot of different systems within the plant. Um, like the Krebs cycle is one. It has a pretty wide diversity of bacillus species in it. Subtilis, megatarium, thuringensis, or, uh, you know, all of those, all those like really common ones. So it's like almost like a 
you know, like those bottled inoculants that people pay a bunch of money for, it has a very similar profile of bacillus species within this corn steep powder, as well as having a bunch of different organic acids that stimulate processes in the plant. So I've been using that a lot lately, corn steep powder. It's like a byproduct of the um, like corn steep liquor industry. They just kind of like dry it out and they're using it as fertilizer in the, in the organic community now. I definitely recommend trying it out. It's really cool stuff. Yeah, it's something I haven't uh, had a time to play with at all. And something I definitely like to learn more about. Yeah, Tim Hanrahan turned me on to that. He, um, he kind of found it, told me about it. I hunted it down and have been using it and I've been seeing really good effects. It's good stuff. Um, it's Very kind of cool. comparable to um, uh, like a corn SST, like sprouted seed tea which I've used a bunch in the past also. Um, and this is just a little bit more convenient. I can just add it to my tea and water it in and not have to soak seeds for days and sprout all these seeds and blend them and strain them, which can be a pain in the ass. And there's tons of uh, gophers and mice around. And so when I make these teas, I kind of like attract mice to my space, which I'm not a huge fan of. I don't need mice nibbling on all my on all my stuff. You can make uh, for FMA, fermented mouse amino acid. <laughs> I don't quite have um, the stomach for that. But I get it. Um, the, uh, I haven't, that's interesting about the nitrogen input on it too. It, it's, it's a pretty cool uh, plant-based nitrogen to, for people to consider as well, which is not always the easiest thing to find. Right, definitely. Um, I've been leading on like soy aminos as my nitrogen, um, like agmino is the one that I've been using a lot. I like to use it in my soil. I like to use it as like a foliar application too. Um, uh, just last night I did um, soy aminos and micronized calcium, which the plants loved. If you've never tried combining soy aminos and micronized calcium, I highly recommend it. It's just it kind of just bypasses all those um, processes that require energy to make nutrients available and they just go directly into the plant cells. So, you know, it takes energy in like organic systems for plants to um, communicate with the soil, communicate with biology, um, you know, passively communicate through the root egg states and then those, that biology to consume specific inputs and then make them readily available um, in nutrient form for the plant to uptake when using like um, uh, like NH4, you know, these amino acid sources, this, this particular form of nitrogen, um, it kind of bypasses that process as well as using micronized inputs. It also bypasses the processes because it just goes directly into the, the cell wall. So I've been using it a lot in, in foliar application and it's just been crushing it. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, there's somebody in chat. It's the Bacillus amphipoliensis is the king. Um, you do have to be careful with Bacillus amphipoliensis. You can actually test hot for aspergillus and get a false positives with Bacillus amphipoliensis. You're seeing a lot of the commercial market kind of get away from that particular microbe, despite the fact that that microbe is completely safe. There's nothing wrong with using it, especially at the home scale. But if you're doing it commercially, you do need to be aware that you can get false positives with that particular microbe for aspergillus. I just wanted to mention that because somebody said it in chat. Um, you also do a lot with, go ahead. 
Is that because they secrete similar compounds, like similar enzymes that they test for when they're testing for, for aspergillus? I, I don't remember. Kevin McKernan's the one who wrote the paper on it. Um, I read through it like twice. I just don't remember the exact chemistry specifics of it, but it had something to do with like breaking down the media as well. There was like two components to it. Um, that was part of it. And the other part of it was, it, it ended up triggering as a byproduct, the um, the false positives for, uh, for aspergillus, which a lot of people had failed for aspergillus and were like, what the hell? I'm applying my probiotics. You know, there's no way that there's an active colony on there. And it turned out to be a false positive to uh, because of the bacillus empicoliensis. I might be butchering that name, but I think you guys know which microbe I'm talking about. Um, you do a lot with uh, FPJs as well. What are some of the different plants that you're big fans of for FPJs? So yeah, I like making FPJs. I've, I've um, kind of steered away from it a little bit um, and have gone straight to just like blending plants. Um, but I do love FPJs and like my favorite ones that I've made are bamboo, which is, you know, talked about a lot in, in the KNF book. I like using premature blackberries, premature apples, premature pears. Um, oh God, there's another, another really good one. A lot of premature stuff. So like when they're kind of premature, they have more like density of organic acids and, and like um, phytochemicals that trigger like physiological responses in plants. Um, the one that's kind of been shown um, through like research is methyl jasmine, you know, jasmonic acid. Um, whether or not those phytohormones survive the fermentation process or are in, you know, the, the correct, dosages required to create the physiological responses, I really don't know. And I think that there's there's a lot of research that needs to be done surrounding that. Um, and I'm really reluctant to make the claim that like if you ferment these things, you harness these specific, like particular phytohormones and those phytohormones are triggering a response. Um, phytohormones are organic acids and organic acids stimulate a lot of different processes in the plants. And there's a fucking huge amount of organic acids out there. I think it has more to do with the profile of organic acids and how that profile affects the plant than very specific phytohormones or what we call phytohormones, um, which are just organic acids. These are all just carbon chain molecules um, and compounds that, um, that have very specific reactions um, in the root zone to biology um, and to plants like they affect them in, in very different ways. And so we'll use them and we'll see like plant responses, um, but I'm really reluctant to say like, if you use this input, you're harnessing this hormone. Um, there's a lot of that talk out there online um, and people say that a lot. Um, when you look it up, what is the dosage of cytokinins required to create a physiological response in, in cannabis? the information doesn't exist. What is the, the, the concentration of gibberellins in this particular input? The information doesn't exist. Um, those things haven't been, been looked up on like all of these really popular cannabis inputs. Um, and so while they may contain them, 
we don't know if the, if like the, the the potency is even there to create that response that we're looking for. I really believe that it's the consortium of, of organic acids that make that influence, which is obviously occurring. Because um, when I'm using FPJs, it's very obvious. Like if I make a bamboo FPJ, like a bamboo shoot FPJ, and I give them to my veg plants, they pray and they stretch and they grow super fast, right? If I use a premature berry, you know, during transition phase, they throw pistols like crazy. Um, if I'm using like an apple um, FPJ or fermentation later on, like they stack weight. Like these things are observable, but whether or not they're doing these things because of these very specific phytohormones that we associate um, with those characteristics, I'm not completely sold on because especially during fermentation, organic acids convert from one organic acid to another organic acid. And after fermentation, it's very possible that that consortium has changed pretty drastically and doesn't even exist in its original form. So I've been playing a lot with just blending these inputs um, and not fermenting them because there are particular plant inputs that have been shown to have specific organic acids um, that we consider phytohormones. Um, and I, I feel like this is a more predictable approach. Um, and also I'm not having to, to add a whole bunch of like brown sugar to my, my, um, my soil, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I do like making FPJs and I'm actually gonna be making an FPJ here soon um, with premature apples. Um, but I just wanted to communicate kind of like my feelings on it. I think it's important to, to acknowledge. Sure, and I think a lot of people do the same thing with the trichat. I think we lost you. A lot of people talk, sorry, my internet disconnected there for a second. So my internet today is not the best, so I apologize, guys. Um, the uh, a lot of people talk about this too with like alfalfa and alfalfa teas with the tricantinol. Um, the tricantinol is, is pretty instantly obliterated by high levels of oxygen. So if you're doing an actively aerated tea with with alfalfa, you're kind of obliterating your tricantinol before it ever makes it to the plant. So I think a lot of people are worried about like, oh, well, it's a PGR or whatever else. First off, it's an organic PGR, so what does it matter? And then second of all you're destroying all of it before it ever actually hits the plant. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right that a lot of this stuff, yeah, the original input has a lot of these things that are highly beneficial, but once you ferment it or brew it, you're completely changing the, the you know, chemical structure of, of what's going on and converting a lot of those things into other compounds that we simply don't understand yet because there's just so much going on in a lot of these different organic inputs and so many different chemi chemical processes that, are breaking these down. I mean, shit, just look at like monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes is another example of that where, you know, we don't really understand all the different components to it, but we certainly know how to increase it. It's kind of uh, where we're, we're going with these kinds of things. Yeah, 100%. Um, I've been playing around with, um, so I, I, you know, phytohormones are really interesting to me and I've done a lot of research into it. And the like industry standard for um, phytohormone extraction is with acidic water, like 3.5 pH water. Um, and when I, and then they, you know, they, they do solvent processes and distillation processes to get them down to their, their you know, isolated form. Um, but the first thing that I thought of was like a fermented plant extract 
right? Like a, you know, with like lactobacillus, which is really low pH, like 3.5. Although when doing that, you know, you're adding a whole bunch of lactobacillus, which is then consuming the plant material and very possibly converting those um, phytohormones into something else or breaking them down completely and making them non-viable. And that piece of information is really impossible to determine without like a chromatograph, um, which I haven't heard of anyone doing on like natural farming inputs or having that tested, um, which would probably be pretty expensive because chromatography is really expensive and it's a really expensive piece of equipment that requires like training to operate. And I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't know anyone with a chromatograph. Um, so it's just when, when I see conversations surrounding use this for this because of this and this causes this, I get kind of leery um, of really standing behind that information. Although it is possible that the correct proportions and correct doses exist to create those reactions. I think what's more viable is just that we observe these changes, right? Like we use these inputs and we observe specific changes to our plant growth structure or like the response in the plant. And that's almost like the best that we have, right? Is we know like we use this and we're seeing this characteristic. Um, We use this and we're seeing this characteristic, but to attach it to like a very particular phytohormone, I think is a pretty big leap um, that we just can't substantiate. I definitely agree 100%. Um, one of the other inputs I wanted to ask you about, you also have an aer- aer- an aerobic vermicompost ferment, which uh, I thought was really interesting when I was kind of doing some of the research um, before the show. You, you're always, you're one of the few people uh, that's always kind of cooking up new cool stuff. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to kind of get you on, because you, you've come up with a bunch of interesting things since uh, the last time you were on the show, quite a few episodes ago, so... Um, do you want to tell us a little about that one as well? Because it's something that I haven't, it's an interesting combination of methods that I haven't seen anyone else really combine, which is one of the other interesting things I wanted to talk to you about today. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's kind of just my fancy way of saying it's an earthworm casting tea. <laughs> um, I feel like tea just isn't really a proper word um, for what we're doing. We're not really making a tea and it is a ferment, like compost teas are a fermentation process. Fermentation is typically associated with uh, anaerobic conditions. While this is an aerobic fermentation, it's almost an aerobic digestion. Um, So really that's like my, I feel like it's just a more accurate way of of talking about a compost tea. They're aerobic fermentations um, instead of a compost tea, because this isn't compost, it's um, they're earthworm castings, which is a composting, it's a mesophilic composting process, but it's my, I just felt like it was my more accurate description of what I was doing. And this is kind of like my staple go-to tea recipe, which is oat flour, beet juice, earthworm castings, um, and then aloe vera post-brew. And I think that's just all I used in this one, but I kind of walked through the process of exactly how I did it. And I strain out everything because I have to pump it through a hose. And so I can't have a whole bunch of like chunks and stuff. So I kind of walk people through like how I do it. Um, so people can try to try to mimic it. I like to do like a pound of um, beets per uh, 10 gallons. 
So this is a hundred gallon brewer. I would use um, uh, like 10 pounds, right? And I do that for aloe vera too, like 10 pounds of aloe vera. Um, and some people think that that's a lot. Um, after I do this, I like to water my teas in also. Um, so I make sure my soil is moist. I water my teas in and then I water on top of my teas to kind of dilute them a bit, but also like get the penetration in um, real deep. Um, I know the, uh, some of the other stuff you've been working on, I want to make sure you touch on it, is your seeds. You have uh, some really cool stuff available now, and uh, I want to make sure you get a chance to touch on that as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, awesome. Let's see if, if you scroll down a bit. So that big yeah, so that's one of my, oh wait, is that one of my, so that big bud right there, that big, there's a picture of like um, uh, me holding, that's not one of my genetics, it's actually Gelato 41, but if you find that picture, you just, it was just there, um, of me holding that big bud, that's one of my genetics right there, yeah, yeah, so that's my moon diamond, um, I've been working this line I call Lunar Cheese, which is um, DJ Shorts Blueberry on Kryptonite, and then on UK cheese. And I've been working that for a while. And then I put that on, on a bunch of different kind of like clone only genetics also. That one is the lunar cheese on Diamond OG. And it's just this fucking awesome smelling, uh, like funky, cheesy, berry. Um, it produces huge frosty buds. It just puts on weight. It does, it just, I love that genetic. And then I have my, so that's the moon diamond. And then I have my raspberry moon cheese, which is on the um, animal cookies, which is now I have F2. I have pictures of that also on here. Um, I'm gonna have to scroll down a bit. That super frosty one there, that's one of my genetics also. I should say it on there. Blood Moon. So that's the Lunar Cheese F2. And that just has these really long trichome necks, um, super high trichome density, um, a really interesting, like creamy smell to it. It was like a creamy, also kind of berry leaning. The the um, DJ Shorts blueberry really comes out in a lot of it. And the UK cheese comes out in a lot of it. Um, the kryptonite kind of gives it an interesting taste. Um, I don't know if it affects the profile very much, but it gives it like this really sharp like bite, right? Like you smoke it in it and it really bites you and it really hits you in the sinuses um, and like lingers around the... Um, the flavor profile is definitely like really creamy and like buttery, which I think is a really unique profile um, and kind of characteristic that you you don't see very much of anymore. Like this creamy, cheesy, like funky, sweet um, profile. And then there's the the raspberry moon cheese. If we can find it, it's it should be down quite a bit. Uh, so that's yeah, that's one right there on the top left. Yeah, so that's, okay, the first image, I forgot that was a real, but the first image and that one too, 
were two different phenotypes of my raspberry moon cheese, that one. And that was a lunar cheese and that one were two different phenotypes. That was all outdoor grown flour. Um, and it was just, it had the trichome density of, um, of indoor. It was totally indoor passing outdoor. And that was grown on those huge trees. And um, a lot of the time people will say like, you know, big trees don't produce as high quality cannabis, but you know, they came off of plants like that. You know, that's an orchard ladder. Um, that plant was just huge and pulled 12 pounds. Yeah, that one. Oh, wait, wait, yeah, yeah, go up a little bit. Yeah, that was my moon glue. So that was my lunar cheese on Gorilla Glue. And if you go up this one right here, that was one of the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you can't see me pointing. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the one in the middle on the right. On the right, that one. Yeah, yeah, that one right there. That was another one of my um, raspberry moon cheese, which was just phenomenal. Super purple, super trichome dense, really frosty, great aroma, really unique. I just love that line so much. Um, and I have seeds available. If anyone wants any, just hit me up on Instagram. I think you're on nice. mute. Yeah, you definitely. Have. There we go. Sorry. Um, they uh, have lots of uh, really nice pictures of different stuff on your uh, Instagram. Here are the different different plants that you have. Yeah, I do my best to grow. You know, real medicine with real soil has like real therapeutic effects. Oh, that was about one of my articles. There's a better picture of that picture that was like a cropped image from. From, uh... So how long are you, uh, a lot of people want to know, like, when do you start the plants for, for getting stuff that's this size? Are you starting them in January or February? And, and no, them out no, no, everyone always months? thinks that I'm, I'm growing like these huge plants indoor and putting them outside. Um, no, so I'm, I'm, I'm not. So I, uh, I think I, I started them in May. I think it was like May 14th. They were from like, I planted them from four inch pot into uh, five gallon pots. And they were pretty small when I put them in ground. Um, it's really just about keeping your biology on point, making sure your soil has what it needs, making sure you keep your soil wet. I mean, it also helps that I was growing in Southern Oregon, which is a fantastic climate to grow monster plants in. Um, having your environmentals correct in like an outdoor environment is really key. But I might be able to find an image or send you an image of what they were like when they went in the ground. Sure. You also have a podcast as well. Do you want to uh, mention that? Yeah, sure. So I've been doing um, a podcast with um, Alexandria Irons, Alex Irons. She's known as Queen of the Sungrown on Instagram. Her and I have been doing it for her and I have been doing it for like a month. I've been doing it for like two months. Um, and she jumped on and yeah, it's called the sun and the moon. And we actually did it right before this one. So we had like an hour and a half podcast and then I immediately jumped on this one. Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, for sure.
Let me scroll way back here. It's always uh, fun. I know uh, you're uh, one of the resources aside from Matt Powers and Chris Trump that I reach out to in terms of organic ferments and other teas and things. It's always fun to talk to you about all these different types of things because all of us are working in different directions with kind of what we're doing or aiming at. So it's always fun to kind of see what what yeah. uh, people figure it's, out. It's impossible to study everything surrounding organic cultivation and soil sciences and plant sciences, you know? So you kind of got to like pick a little discipline and then exchange information amongst each other. They asked, do you have any tutorial videos on how to use gibberellic acid? for old seeds um i don't i'm certain that there's some online um if you are gonna buy it let me throw that up because this is a good website if you don't know about it um it's a wonderful what resource called phytotech lab so if you want to get into like really weird experimentation and you want specific plant hormones or amino acids or you know, whatever, plant growth regulators, carbohydrates. Oh, apparently I can't spell today. So people were asking about, you know, like how big are my plants? Um, one of the, I think the key, like a key thing to really acknowledge when trying to grow big plants is um, root zone management. You never want your plant to really create like a like a concentration of roots like to get root bound in any pot um before putting it in the soil um you'll see people like try to grow a big plant in a pot and then like the roots will get really like tied up at the bottom you'll get kind of like a root bounding a root coiling um, and that really inhibits the stretch of roots and the like potential that the plant has and if you really want to grow big plants direct sow your plants in the ground I'm trying to find this picture here. So here, this is a good kind of scenario. Um, I'm just going to send it to your Facebook. I don't know if you can. That's fine. That works. So this was the planting day. And I did have my dates a little bit wrong. I planted on May 4th. I did not start them on May 14th. Um, so I think it must it must have been March 14th, not May 14th, and I got my dates wrong. Um, so I planted on May 4th, and you can see the size of my plants in that garden. Um, I'm sorry, excuse me for just a second. I gotta get my cat. No worries. Creatures always, uh, always get in the way. No worries. I hope everybody in chat is having a good time. We uh, should be back to our normal schedule. Had a little bit of a break there. It might be, uh, might be off next week. I should be able to do a show next week. Um, and then uh, I get to my new spot in uh, the following week, and we'll see how how the internet is there. But uh, we might start doing some recorded episodes as well. 
a couple of guests that I want to get on that we haven't had a chance to get on because of the time that we record. So um, because of international time zones and stuff. So we're going to have one or two uh, non-live episodes, I think, a month um, just to try and incorporate some of those guests in the future. Uh, let's see here. Um, you also do a lot of work with, um, I've seen you do some stuff with roots and, and root teas and ferments. Is that something else that you have done? Um, I've heard you, I've seen some of your posts on it. Root teas? What do you, like, like sprouts? Yeah, like sprouts and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I like alfalfa sprouts and barley sprouts and uh, lentil, corn. You can sprout anything, really. Yeah, that was one of the rudimentary ones. <laughs> um, I have a video where I go over um, like a sprouted corn, which is a pretty decent video. That was one of my very rudimentary attempts from a while ago. Um, but it's a little bit higher. Yeah, the, there, that one. And I kind of walk through my process. Um, I like to soak them for 24 hours. It's a little bit different than what a lot of people do. So for 24 hours and then I um, rinse them every 24 hours, like rinse and drain, um, and then put them in, or I soak them and then put them in the sprouting trays and then rinse, let them sit in water for like 10, 15 minutes and then drain and rinse those um, and do that for like three or four days and they get like really nice sprouts. And then you blend them up um, and strain them. And uh, that's my, that was, that's my indoor. And uh, yeah, and that has like a really great like enzymatic profile um, that also has a bunch of different organic acids. Um, I like to use that kind of thing around like week five. I also try to give like, you know, really in-depth um, explanations on the organic acids and the information that I've found surrounding those organic acids and their effects on plants. My cat's being a little demon. Um, yeah, so. I try to do as much like research on the different uh, like phytochemical profiles of the inputs that I'm using and then provide that information in the um, posts that I make. I like to look up phytochemical profiles on Dr. Duke's phytochemical database, which is a, a fantastic resource if people aren't familiar with it. Yeah, so that's my Patreon. Okay, stop it. We'll make sure we have that uh, in the chat there. Uh, yeah, so that's my Patreon. That's my Patreon, and I keep um, I put all my my tea recipes, um, like with the application rates, and whatever research that I'm doing, I post all that information. I have tons of PDFs, tons of books. Um, I go into like real minutia behind profiles and like physiological effects, um, and I have like a big big database surrounding all sorts of different topics on cultivation. Um, I have a post about it too, where I kind of show the channels that I have and like the different topics and stuff. Um, but I also do like live Q and A's where people, it's almost like a, like an hour of free consulting, but like in a group setting where people join, you're not going outside, where people um, like join and um, just ask general questions about cultivation, right? Um, and I just give consulting for like an hour, in like a group setting. So that's another resource that I offer there. 
um, as well as whatever research papers I'm reading or subjects that I'm kind of diving into. I just, I use it as like my information dump, right? So I can keep track of everything um, as well as just share it with the people who subscribe to my Patreon channel. Um, and there's a $10 tier and there's a $20 tier. The $20 tier gives you access to the live Q and A. Um, so it's like only 10 bucks a month and you get like an hour of free consulting, um, which I think is pretty good. Oh, sorry, didn't realize that was muted. Um, let's pull it up, Dr. Dukes. You can also, so Dr. Dukes is great. I'll throw this up. If you're looking for, like, especially chemical, uh, additional chemical inputs, amino acids, or enzymes, um, you can search, you know, most normal plants on here. Uh, it'll come up. You also have the Open Nutrient Project, which I'll throw up as well, which is a, um, if you're looking for something that's a little more organized, for a little bit more organized for, there we go, uh, for nutrient input uh, in particular. Um, you can find that on my website as well. Um, you can pull up and click magnesium and we have all of them sorted by average minimum parts per million content, um, sorted by Latin name with a link back to the original source material. Um, apparently that, what link is broken, but most of them do work back to uh, Dr. Dukes or whatever the source material was. I do have about 12 different databases that I've managed to find um, and try to combine them all uh, and put them into one place so that you guys can have access to that uh, and have it a little bit easier to sort if you're trying to brew up teas and things like that. Um, you can also click here and uh, I got to finish filling out the soil testing section, but all the liquid tests for any of your liquid um, Input is also available there. Uh, if you click uh, a water test, then you can test all of your inputs. I don't know why the link is taking forever today, but the internet is just a bit slow here while, while streaming. But if you click it uh, on the water testing, it will load as well. Uh, and it gives you a whole long spreadsheet. And then if you want to, um, there's other inputs with, with other uh, uh, non-PPM listed. And then we have, uh, submission form if you want to submit your results with your stuff and then a whole separate spreadsheet that just has the results of different uh, and again my internet is shit today here but uh there's another spreadsheet that has what everyone submitted so far so if you want to see what other people's teas and ferments were and what the ppm tests were if they happen to test them um you can see all that data there from the crowdsourced information here at this link as well which i will uh at some point embed under the website but uh I've just not had time. But uh, if you're looking for just the nutrient side of things for your teas and ferments, uh, you can find it a little bit easier to uh, to sort through version over on my website. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, but yeah, Dr. Dukes is great if you're doing some of the more advanced stuff like you're talking about with the Trying to hunt down different specific compounds for different reasons or one uh, or another. Mm -hmm. Are there any other good resources that you found aside from that as far as uh, the stuff that's been beneficial to your work with the different stuff that you've been doing? The main one is going to be Dr. Dukes. I've been using Dr. Dukes a lot. 
Phytochem is pretty cool, but I've never ordered anything from them. <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, Phytotech Labs is definitely a, a good one. Phytotech Labs, yep. yeah. Yeah, they're, they're great. Uh, we'll put them back up on the screen one more time, just in case anybody missed it earlier. If you are looking for individual hormones and enzymes and amino acids, you can order them all through this, uh, this company. And um, they do come pure. Uh, they also have like tissue culture uh, kits and stuff like that as well. Um, if you're wanting to get into that realm, uh, you can get all your supplies on here as well. At, you know, pretty reasonable price. Be careful using those isolated molecules like that. Oh yeah, you can definitely do a lot of damage, but if you're trying to get an exact result with, you know, A plus B equals C, uh, it's a little bit easier to work with uh, that, at least for testing purposes. Don't go using it on your commercial grow, but if you're just trying to prove out an idea, uh, it certainly is a good resource to have. Have you ever done that? Um, just with gibberellic acid for old seeds. Um, that's what I've ordered from there in the past. But uh, we did a little bit of stuff with a couple of different things back when I worked at Aquaponics Source on testing out, like, is it this particular thing that's causing this problem or whatever? But I don't remember exactly what, what it was that we were. That's how I found out on the website the first time. But um, yeah, I remember um, yeah. Coop, Coop was the first person who told me about that. Yep. Coot was on uh, on our other show yesterday. We have another show called Dat Smoke Show, um, which is kind of what the, the second half of the show used to be. We used to have an interview portion and a panel portion of the show, and uh, it just made more sense to move to the, the more professional interviews and then have the panel as a separate kind of fuck around show. So uh, you guys can check that out over at Dat Smoke Show. We're usually a little more looser. Um, I don't make every episode on there. Wes Engine and I kind of both co-host that show over there so uh, check it out Wes is always there if I'm not so, uh, always have a different group of uh, cannabis cultivators or breeders or uh, otherwise people that are involved in the cannabis industry there to uh, to have a good time Alrighty, well um, uh, I don't want to tie up your whole night I know you've uh, this is your second show of the evening but uh, let me throw your uh, stuff back up on the screen here uh, for those of you guys at home that want to uh, to support Luna, you can find her at uh, Luna All Day on. As it shows me here, Luna All Day on uh, Instagram, or Luna All Day on Patreon. Uh, if you want the resources and recipes uh, that she's taking the time to put together, um, definitely check it out. You can get all that through her uh, Patreon. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's always fun chatting with you and. Uh, yeah. Always fun to see what you're up to. I certainly learned a lot tonight and have some new stuff to test and play with. And uh, looking forward to uh, checking out some of your other recipes. Yeah, thanks a bunch. Are you still are you still out in Thailand? Uh, I'm back home for a couple of weeks. Uh, my dad's having oh, had to have surgery this on Monday, uh, okay. and I had to take care of some stuff here. And then uh, we back in September, or October, depending on when uh, the government decides to settle down. Um, and everything's basically kind of financially on pause over there until the government figures out which party is going to be the ruling power. Although that looks like it's going to be the, uh, that's getting sorted out this week, but it's still not set in stone yet. So everyone's kind of just freaked out and waiting. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see how that, it goes. I hope that works out good. Um, I do want to toss out one last thing. Um, I'm going to be coordinating the social media for Skunk Magazine 
um, here starting next week. Um, and I'm looking for different companies that want to like collaborate and get their information out there um, to kind of like uh, share posts, um, like they create content. And we um, do like a collaboration post on Skunk Magazine's uh, social media. If that sounds like something that someone is interested in, just contact me and I will run it by the, the people within Skunk Magazine. Um, and we'll see if we can we can work something out. mute again yeah i'm i do not have my usual setup set up right now so i'm all kinds of discombobulated um they do have a wonderful uh, website tons of great articles uh really great crew of writers so definitely check them out mm -hmm. all righty well thank you so much for coming on today and uh and doing a second show for us today so i appreciate it yeah thanks so much steve have a great rest of your day. Sure. Thanks, you too. Bye. Thanks. And you guys can, uh, again, find her at uh, Luna All Day on Patreon and Instagram. And we should be back to our normal schedule uh, from here on out with the show. Uh, again, there might be a week off, possibly next week or the week after. Um, just depends on internet connections. But, uh, but yeah, everything should be, uh, should be sorted. And if you guys are uh, out at Turp Float this weekend in Oklahoma, I will be swinging through. I'm in Oklahoma for a couple of days before I head back to Pennsylvania. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Always fun to hang out with you guys. I apologize for the, the couple of weeks off on the show. I was traveling and just doing a bunch of different stuff, and Thursdays weren't happening. And we had two days where we had a guest, and the guest was unable to join us at the last minute. So, um yeah like i said i'm gonna try and record up some extra episodes so if we do have a week off here or there we, we will have some, some banked up episodes to try and keep back on schedule and uh appreciate the community and uh, all you guys continuing to be supportive of uh of the channel so thanks a lot everybody and uh, be sure to follow luna and all the awesome content that she's putting out and uh we'll catch you guys again next week also uh be sure to check out uh, matt powers his book comes out here in the next month or so um, his microscope book is amazing. I had a chance to review it. Um, so be sure to check that out as well. And uh, don't forget about the educational courses that we have over at apmjclass.com and on Teachable. Uh, we also have the pestclass.com with our, uh, our pest stuff as well.